The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Art is something we consume or participate in every day. Every podcast we listen to, book we read, TV show or movie is a piece of art. A lot of the time we don't even realize that we are participating in it at all. The value of funding the arts is often debated, particularly when that funding competes with funding for issues such as homelessness, healthcare or family violence. In Australia, arts funding is diminishing at the federal level and in some states too. I invited Jade Lilly, who is Head of Sector Development at the Australia Council for the Arts, to chat with us today about the role art plays in our everyday lives, how it can be used as an effective tool to address social issues, and also the complexities surrounding the funding and delivery of arts projects in Australia and overseas, particularly in an international development context. Jade is known for her work as a leader, executive, facilitator, and specialist in community engagement. She's been recognized for her thought leadership in receiving the Sydney Meyer Creative Fellowship in 2018, following her role as director and CEO at Footscray Community Arts Centre. While Jade has held a number of leadership roles across the sector, she's primarily known and respected for her skills and expertise in strategy, governance, and her commitment to collaboration cultural leadership and advocacy in championing diversity and access. She has lived and worked in regional, remote and metropolitan contexts across Australia and Southeast Asia. Jade is also curator and editor of the book, The Relationship is the Project. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Jade. Thanks, Lee. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. Jade, I'm going to jump right in and ask you something I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Uh, I think for me, it's about using whatever sphere of influence you have to make the most of that for other people, whether you have shared lived experiences with those communities or you don't. Opening doors wherever possible, making sure that you're leveraging and utilising your networks and capabilities as best you can to support a better world. How do you think that you express that in your daily life? I think generally I try to come to things with kindness and compassion on a personal level, not only, you know, for people around me, but for myself, you know, we can all be quite hard on ourselves and I'm trying to learn that as much as everybody else, I guess. And in my work, it mostly manifests in making sure that I'm always asking who's not at the table and who needs to be here and how do I find them? And perhaps that means doing something I've not done before or supporting the team to do that, but um, really reaching much further than my usual kind of immediate circles and always finding new people and new ways to 
engage in conversations and share experiences. Has that been something that you've always felt in, in terms of how, how you should do good in life or is it something that's kind of evolved over time for you? I think I've always probably wanted to and been, a, been drawn to working with communities and with others, others being just people who aren't me or my, my immediate circle, whatever that means. I've always been curious about other people and, and wanting to make sure that whatever I can do and however I can do it, I'm supporting people to come together and connect and have a better experience, a sense of belonging, I guess. The role of arts in society can at times seem quite elusive to an outsider, but what role do you feel the arts has to play in our our daily lives? I think sometimes the arts is like nature. It's all around us. It's everywhere we go, whether you're in the city and it's that bird over there in that tree or if you're in the forest, it's actually everywhere around us. But sometimes we don't notice or we haven't seen it. We might not have experienced it. So we're not turning towards it in the same way. You know, at the Australia Council, we've just done or released a piece of research that says 84% of Australians are participating in arts and culture. And so that tells us that whether you're reading a book or listening to a podcast or listening to music in the car whilst you're driving to pick your kids up from somewhere, it's all around us all the time. And it's a broad spectrum, of course, so you can kind of actively participate as in go to attend an event or an experience or you can actually quite passively engage in arts and culture by watching a film, by reading your kid a story. It's all of that is art and I just don't think always that people necessarily connect those things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that, you know, I'm probably one of those people that don't connect, you know, the fact that I read a book before bed every night as participating in the arts or even for me, like producing a podcast. Somebody pointed out to me, well, yeah, you're you're creatively producing something. That's the arts. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I'm looking at your background and you're surrounded by a bookshelf and perhaps some, you know, little ceramics or something that's been made by someone locally to you or someone you know perhaps. But all of those things are created by people and time is taken to to make them. You might engage in fashion. You might have a particular local designer that you love the fabric that they use and that's an act of creativity too. So we kind of wear, engage, participate, receive, give, exchange, learn, all those things in relation to arts and culture. Yeah, I love that. You talk a lot about how arts and cultural development can bring about systemic change when it comes to addressing social issues. Can you expand on that for us? In a similar vein to what I just said, it's sort of a great leveller in some ways. You know, we can come together around a piece of music, we can come together around a story. Many of us get an opportunity to hear from a traditional owner, a welcome to country, for example, and that's an extraordinary experience that tens or hundreds or sometimes thousands of people get to share together. I think those things make arts and culture vital and important in daily life. So one of the things arts and culture does is give us an opportunity to participate in something together, 
and in order to be able to influence social and systemic change that is absolutely something that is a collective experience i know from my own work and working in community context for a very long time you know sometimes arts and culture is the thing that engages a particular group of young people say that haven't really been participating in perhaps the um, mainstream education system or something that's on offer to them locally and what we know and what we see happen is by way of participating, by building pride, by building pride in self and community and culture, that then brings people to participate more in citizenship and the kind of cultural offerings as people that we have the opportunity to engage in and express in our communities. So it's a great influencer and an opportunity for people to engage and we can also make something amazing, make something beautiful, make something powerful. Perhaps someone alone isn't able to amplify their greatest concern or fear about what's happening in the world or in their community, but together there's a sense of strength and courage and together we can actually speak more loudly and amplify those issues more widely through arts and cultural expression. A lot of our listeners are working in the international development sector. You have worked with community organisations in the human rights and trafficking space over in Chiang Mai in Thailand on arts projects. In the hierarchy of needs when it comes to international development, arts often sits lower than the more urgent needs of food, water, shelter, education, you know, healthcare. How important are arts projects in the international development sector? Yeah, and it should sit in that space. You know, we know that from disaster recovery work, say, you have to address someone's immediate needs before you can perhaps provide an invitation or an opportunity to participate in something that's more for self or well-being in that sense. So one of the things that happens in the disaster recovery space is that the arts and cultural offering or the, or the projects that are going to support children, young people, families and communities to come together to perhaps debrief and tell their stories through digital storytelling projects or through an exhibition or through a series of stories or whatever that, whatever that mechanism is that's possible in that place and is relevant and interesting to that community. You have to work through the housing, the shelter, the sanitisation of, of water systems, the, the clothing, all the things that people have lost. But arts and culture plays a very significant role in the reconnecting, the reconnecting of community, the kind of coming out of disaster and into connectivity. And we certainly see that in Australia too, um, particularly in the disaster recovery space or creative recovery space post-bushfires, post-floods, the role of creative recovery in supporting communities to come to understand their experiences and have a way of expressing that, uh, building a body of work that tells a story from the community that other people can understand that way. And I think absolutely if you went in straight away with a, a great arts and cultural project and said, hey, do you want to come and participate in this thing? We're going to paint this great series about your experience of disaster yet someone doesn't have a house to live in or or hasn't doesn't have any food to eat it wouldn't necessarily be the best moment to support the community that you're essentially there to support so it has to be the right timing for the community as well yeah I know from my work in child protection in emergencies 
arts does have a big role to play in the kind of immediate aftermath of a disaster, particularly around, you know, creating child-friendly spaces and having materials that enable children to safely express themselves or non-verbally express themselves. Yeah, and I think that's that's the key, isn't it, is being able to read the context and the environment and respond accordingly, figuring out what the best option and approach is for children, young people, families and so on in those contexts so that you've got those connections and that capacity to be able to give and provide whatever option is going to work best for people. Yeah. I want to talk about arts funding. You have experience working in both the art sector and the health sector. Why do you feel they're so often pitted against each other for philanthropic or government funding? I think that there's a huge opportunity for the arts and cultural industries and the health sector to really come together around the social and cultural determinants of health. That's probably the space that I think there's huge opportunity for collaboration, you know, for people to be able to experience good health and well-being. Cultural rights plays a really significant part of that and the opportunity and ability to be able to participate in and shape your own cultural identity. I think from a philanthropic perspective, quite simply, a lot of philanthropic trusts and foundations are really interested in supporting communities around building capacity for change, for engagement, and sometimes there's particular interests in health and sometimes there's particular interests in arts. I'm really interested in when those things come together and there are agencies who do that, like Vic Health, for example, they have a really significant arts and cultural investment program and there are others. But, yeah, I think the opportunity is there for us to work more closely together, particularly around social justice, community health, arts and cultural development and those spaces. A previous guest on this podcast, uh, philosopher and ethicist Peter Singer, has regularly stated that funding arts through philanthropy is unethical when people in developing countries are losing their lives due to lack of access to clean water or healthcare or addressing preventable diseases. He says that philanthropists should never give money to the arts and gives an example of this saying that if you have $100,000 that's donated to an organisation working on preventable health issues and that could prevent a thousand people, for example, from losing their sight, whereas the same $100,000 donated to a museum for the purposes of expanding their building space might contribute to what he says is an enhanced aesthetic experience for 100,000 visitors over a 50-year period. Of course, it's a very economic-focused argument, but what's your opinion on this? Well, they're sort of opposite ends of a spectrum, even if they're on the same spectrum in some ways. I think that there's a huge amount of sweet spots in the middle where, yes, of course, no one is arguing that $100,000 towards supporting people to have their eyesight should be redirected to a museum so that they can build a new space. But on balance, perhaps there's all of these other investments that come from a philanthropic and trust and foundations perspective, which is about 
building community. It's about arts, community arts and cultural development work. Perhaps even you could say in the same community that is experiencing that need for for eyesight. I mean, again, as we said earlier, it's really important to acknowledge the timing of that work and perhaps you know prioritizing what projects need to need to happen first. But wouldn't we also say that all communities, again, from a cultural rights perspective, have the right to participate in and shape their own cultural identity? And if that's about a localised response from a cultural perspective, whether that's about, you know, storytelling projects or supporting children and young people to participate all the way up to an art centre or a museum, if that's really what is right for that particular community, I think it's important for us to take a bit more of a self-determined approach to that too and perhaps asking communities what's vital for them and prioritising that way. If we can get those relationships right and in place, that would be the ideal scenario. Absolutely. And would you say that a holistic approach is required that addresses people's immediate basic needs, but also their cultural needs at the same time, rather than a hierarchy? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's intersectionality, isn't it? It's you, you are multiple people, or you have multiple identities or experiences, life experiences, lived experiences on any given day. And asking people to decide between eyesight and the opportunity to participate in arts and culture, we also know that things don't quite work that way. And even if you took $100,000 from the arts with the intention of it going to a particular project like that, it, it doesn't always swap out that way. It depends on the interests, it depends on the partners and the stakeholders, what's important for that community. But I absolutely would say it's a holistic response. I mean, that's who we are as people, right? We're we're multiple things on any given day in multiple ways. And um, a holistic response is the only response to that. Yeah. I know Peter talks about the kind of example of the philanthropist here in Melbourne, for example, that's going to give $100,000 to an arts project versus giving that to a, you know, a project overseas that does something like this. Perhaps there's a difference between giving it for the expansion of a building or perhaps donating it to buy yourself a box seat with your name on a plaque versus funding community arts programs. Absolutely. I think that's my main point is that there's a lot in between those two options. And also, I mean, philanthropic contributions are, are also driven by the interests of the of the people who are gifting that money and in some ways you know no one's bound to contribute in, and gift financial support to communities and I guess I think relationships with philanthropic trusts and foundations are a great gift actually and if we're able to make anything happen together isn't that fabulous and and isn't that a fantastic kind of outcome for the community and look for most of the philanthropists and philanthropic trusts and foundations that I have the opportunity to engage with it's always um, an absolute joy to have the opportunity to really explore the social cultural or political issue that you're both interested in responding to and you kind of get to look at the horizon together and tackle this really complex issue and it's a relationship about trying to come to some kind of creative or cultural solution yeah yeah a complex social issue and I think 
they're always really rich experiences. Yeah, definitely. I think it's quite easy to, you know, measure things that Peter's talking about, such as, you know, saving someone's eyesight costs X amount of dollars. But I think for a lot of people, it's harder to understand how to measure the impact of experiencing or participating in art on a person. Is there some research around that and how that's done? Look, Lee, there is. The Australian Council's recent research around national arts participation really does speak to the ways that people want to and are engaging. It also talks about people's priorities for arts and cultural offerings. The other interesting thing that's come out of that research, which has been happening now for over a decade, is that our top arts advocates from a community and audience perspective are really coming from First Nations and culturally and linguistically diverse artists and communities and young people. And so those are the things that are deeply interesting to me and how we really reflect and lean into those findings from all perspectives to make sure that we are developing work and opportunities and experiences that are relevant. On this podcast, we often talk about the harm that can be done when people try to do good, uh, often with the best of intentions. It seems strange to think that perhaps someone could do harm in the process of working with a community on an arts project. Can you give us some examples of, of, you know, times when this may have happened or situations where this might occur? One of the things that happens particularly from a community arts and cultural development point of view is sometimes the doing good part outweighs the self-determination and the authorship of the community that you're working with. And I've seen that firsthand myself, you know. You can think that you're delivering a project that is exactly what is best for the community, but actually has the community really been asked what is required, what is wanted, is now the right time, if not, when, if ever, what are the skills and experiences that exist in the community, you know, no one requires saving in in that way, the community was fine before you came along and they'll be fine when you leave, so I think it's one of those things that is really about working with communities in true reciprocity and partnership rather than the power dynamic that can sometimes happen, which is I'm here to do good and this is how we're going to do it rather than, okay, so we have an opportunity to do something together. Is that something you want to do and how do you want to run that? Yeah. What kind of impacts do you see on the success of these kind of projects when the the motivations are wrong? You can leave the community quite fractured in terms of asking people to work on something that isn't right for that community at that particular time. Relationships can be damaged if you're representing an organisation, for example. Relationships can be damaged for a very, very long time within that community and certainly between individuals, and that's never a good outcome. Um, I think... I've also absolutely seen where communities are participating in a project for whatever reason but aren't feeling particularly proud of the outcome. And that is always something that's really important is to make sure that whatever the outcome is, everyone who's involved has ownership over that, feels confident and proud about where that particular project has has come to. 
I also think there's a tendency sometimes to push through and look, I've learned firsthand myself that it's really important to know when to step away and to listen to what's not being said. And sometimes if it's not a yes, it's a no, that might be quite a silent cue. But being able to really listen, deeply listen, is super important. Yeah, those are probably the things that I I would suggest are some of the main outcomes if the doing good is not done well. I think that echoes the point of another past guest, uh, Emily Broucher, who talks about the importance of listening in in cross-cultural communication and how uh, often a yes can also mean a no uh, if we don't give enough space for that. Are there ethical frameworks or guidelines that are put in place in general when it comes to thinking about whether it's the right thing to do to implement a project in a community? There should be. One of the reasons I worked on the book project, The Relationship is the Project, was because over many years people would come to me weekly with questions and I didn't really have a quick answer to say, here's this great resource, you could go and do this course, here's this set of protocols, or this is this set of resources that you could engage with. And there were a kind of mashup of things depending on the time that I could refer people to, but nothing that was sort of collectively relevant. And for the most part, it was academic-based tech. So part of the reason for the book project was literally that in trying to provide a place where people could go and get a snapshot, the early thinking, but from a group of practitioners who are working in this space right now and their wisdom about how to work in community contexts and making sure that every person who was writing in that book had a lived experience of what they were writing about. Yeah. There are protocols out there. There are absolutely like working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community protocols. There's a whole series of those types of protocols and guidelines out there and absolutely people can look to places like the Australia Council for those things. But it is also equally important for practitioners and, and people who are interested or have the opportunity to work with communities to really know the things that they don't know. And I guess that's what the book is about. If you're not sure or if, if you don't even know what you don't know, pick up a resource like that, not just that one, but something like that, that gives you a snapshot and tells you, oh, these are the things I need to know more about before I kind of head on into working with people's lives, essentially. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a really good point. And I think something that I talk about often is that when you choose to engage in something that you consider doing good, you have the capacity to significantly impact people's lives, either positively or negatively. And with that power, essentially, comes accountability and responsibility and too often there's not enough of that there's not enough accountability for when things go wrong and I really think we need to kind of shift that lens back onto the people that are doing the good and get rid of that excuse of well I meant well I didn't know better you should know better before you do it (laughs) you know yeah there's not really an excuse for that anymore 
there's enough people, there's podcasts like this one, there's documentaries, there's a whole bunch of ways that you can understand and access information in quite a democratised way. Yeah, ignorance is not really cutting it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk COVID. Given the research that you've been referring to, what role do you think the arts and culture has to play as we emerge from COVID? Well, it's a very complex question at the moment because from an industry point of view, the arts and cultural industries were really the first to close and they are the last to open. And we're talking about an industry that is arguably the toughest, if not very close to one of the toughest, toughest hit sectors. So on that, absolutely, people have increased their digital and online engagement with arts and culture, whether it's, you know, films, live theatre experiences, streams, musicals, Melbourne International Film Festival. You know, there's been a whole whole range of offerings that have been made digital so it has been playing a role in terms of um, providing content and providing stories about the outside if you um through this strange wild experience we're in a situation now where well the states and territories are all having different experiences about what opening back up means And I think absolutely that arts and culture plays a role in supporting Australians to reconnect socially and culturally. Absolutely understanding as being a place for digital and online engagement, it's it's an incredibly important access point, but it also is not a replacement for that showing up to something, having that feeling when you're, again, I use a welcome to country as an example, you know, that I've seen some extraordinary and experienced some extraordinary online welcome to country experiences throughout COVID, whether it's for the First Nations Arts Awards or or various other things. But I still look forward to that moment when I can stand with other people and smell that smoke. It's very deep it as it is to smell it and feel it so in some ways I think that the role of arts and culture is is sort of the coming back out piece yeah for people and the opportunity to come together again and also understand the experience that we've all had I mean I I can't think of something that has touched every person in the world every industry in the world every country every place quite in this way So we've got some work to do to be able to understand that global and local experience that we've all had. So does arts and culture play a role in people telling those stories? Absolutely. Does it play a role in documenting this moment in time? Absolutely. Does it play a role in supporting your kids to go back to school and feel like they can make something with their friends and create in a new way and understand their feelings? Yes, absolutely. Does it also provide us with an opportunity to come together and gather as communities to share an experience? Absolutely. And then hopefully in the not too distant future, people also have an opportunity to be able to learn more. You know, maybe there's been a baking phenomenon, there's been a knitting 
<laughs> can't tell you how many pictures of sourdough I've seen, but you know, people have been learning um, through this time as well. And um, arts and culture is one of those key skills yeah. that people seek to learn more for themselves and be able to do as part of their daily lives. So, yeah, look, I think it plays an incredibly important role. And um, I look forward to seeing what that means. Back to funding. With the Australian Federal Government's inquiry into Australia's creative and cultural industries announced and the slow and pronounced withdrawal of funding from arts at a federal and some state levels, now seems a greater time than ever to be advocating for support for the arts. What are some of the key things that you think might be being missed in advocacy? To be honest, I think it's it's really about the local experience. So how many people know who their local representative is and have had a conversation with them? How many people use their very local kind of experience of the place they live and the folks who represent them to understand what's important to them from an arts and cultural and a whole range of other issues point of view? So there's something about the deeply local experience of being able to, like, what are the mechanisms to share what's important to you as a person who lives in a place and has a particular kind of experience? Um, I've obviously been working a lot with the sector through this time and, um, you know, as the head of sector development at the Australia Council too, I've, I know way more about the Australian Health Protection Principles Committee than I ever thought I would <laughs> um, in terms of COVID safe planning and supporting organisations to think about what it means for COVID safe plans and reopening and safe context and all those sorts of things. But from a broader sector point of view, I think one of the things that is missing is a, a a unified voice from the sector about what is important. And that really comes back to communities and audiences and artists, all the people who come together to make arts and culture possible. So I would love to see a more united and unified advocacy position that talks about the issues rather than the art, if that makes sense. Because I think that's the thing that brings us all together. So if we want to advocate for a greater access to arts and cultural participation for young people, it doesn't really matter if you are a theatre practitioner or a dance artist or a writer or a musician. If we're advocating for that particular issue together, we're better together, we're stronger together. I want to shift the conversation back to you personally and I wonder what is it about your work that you're most drawn to naturally and conversely, what do you find most challenging? Um, For me, there's nothing better than bringing a group of people together for a bigger picture, powerful agenda. I could work by myself. I can do a whole range of things from my own skill set and my own laptop wherever I am. But when I have done that, I've always missed working with people to do something big together so that's something that always draws me back to working in teams and collaborating with folks to create change and at the moment I find the online environment a little excruciating yeah 
<laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to many, many meetings in a day, but I'm not, I'm not usually used to not being able to be in a room with people where I can get a cultural read or it's the smelling of the smoke yep. rather than the seeing it. It's the same thing. You know, Carolyn Bowditch, who's the CEO of Arts Access Victoria, often reminds us that the world's never been more accessible than it is right now. Mm, it's true. And, um, you know, for people to be able to participate the world over in conversations and not having to go through a thousand microaggressions or ableist experiences to get there. So I think I'll totally suck it up in terms of my online exhaustion and <laughs> not wanting people to see the back of my hair because I haven't <laughs> had a haircut for way too long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> To be able to participate in a more democratised, accessible context. Yeah. But I do really look forward to being able to say hello to some people in person at some point. And, um, yeah, just feeling the energy yeah. between people in the room rather than having to orchestrate that. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Jade, who has been or is your greatest influence in doing good and why? To be honest, it's such a collection yeah. of people. You know, from my friend Karina, who runs an Aboriginal-led campaigning organisation called Original Power and just quietly works in community contexts to fight climate change and fight for climate justice, to, you know, Genevieve Greaves, who worked with through Footscray Community Arts Centre and who kind of developed the first working in First Nations cultural context training and really supporting people to understand the impacts of whiteness on daily lives for First Nations people to every person in community that I've worked with in regional remote um, First Nations communities to, you know, my friends and artists and arts workers in communities in Thailand. I don't think I have a hierarchy of kind of the most inspirational person in a way. I'm inspired by so many people and their contributions that they make to the world, everyday folks. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Uh, and it's something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. It's really, it's right now. I think future generations will look back at this time and if we don't make it different coming out of this, they will be completely shocked and dismayed as to why we didn't take that opportunity. You know, there's lots of good things actually that have come out of this strange, wild pandemic experience. Um, my friends and all, and I call them pandemic positives. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's lots of things that we need to try and hold on to, Caroline's point about the well-being or accessible, for example. But there's also a whole range of things that weren't working, the cultural inequities, inaccessibility, the lack of climate responsibility, um, a whole range of things that we've got an opportunity right now to come out of this and create a different kind of future. And if we don't... I'm just not sure we quite deserve the world we've been given. And I certainly think generations down the track will wonder what on earth we were thinking. We had this kind of crazy pause and then we just went back to business as usual, circuit break and make it different. Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard for people to kind of 
wrap their head around the idea that we things won't go back to normal and neither should they. If you could tell the world something right now and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Let's make this future completely new and different and work for so many more people than it has been previously. Yeah. It's a whole nother episode, isn't it? Dismantling, <laughs> dismantling the capitalist system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is a whole other episode. Probably a season. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Tell me about a person who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why. Well, I probably mentioned her earlier, Karina Nolan, director of Original Power. We don't really have an organisation like Karina's elsewhere the deep connection to community, the focus on climate justice and really self-determined community-led responses to very local climate-related issues. Not only do I think she's doing good, I think she's just, you know, making change every day. Yeah, often I think about her and how how we can all support that work better. Where is your favourite place on earth? Look, it's probably Brunswick Heads. (laughs) <laughs> I miss it so much at the moment. I have a bunch of friends up there and a, and I'm from Queensland originally, so I deeply miss the east coast of Australia living in Victoria. I'm very grateful for the different kind of beauty that exists here, but I always crave sort of, you know, I'm always pulled back to that part of the world. It's peaceful and that country is very powerful and there's something about the expansiveness of looking out from the east coast of Australia and everything that's between there and the next place. What books are you reading right now? Well, right now I'm actually reading Jess Sully's new book, which is called Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas for a Fairer World. Do you listen to podcasts? I don't hugely. I've been wanting to more, actually. So this is a good reminder that there's so much content out there. Generally listen to podcasts and audio books when I'm on long road trips and there's been not many of those in no, recent time. No. You know what's interesting? I've, I've kind of read that um, podcast listenership has gone down because nobody's commuting, but podcast creation has gone through the roof. Lots and lots of podcasts have been started during COVID, but listenership is, is not as high as it was mm. pre-COVID, which is, yeah, an interesting phenomenon. So when we get back on the on the road... Hopefully. <laughs> all of the podcasts will be back in... Yeah, hopefully. ...back in flow. Do you have a podcast that you can think of that uh, you've enjoyed in particular? On my list, actually, is Jamila Jamil's podcast. I've been hearing a great deal about her work recently and um, she's the sort of next one on my list, uh, I Way is the name of of that one well jade thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today i really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to do this and i know for me i've learned a lot from our conversation so thank you so much thanks lee it's really nice to meet you and um great to be here appreciate all that you're doing this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. 
Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.